For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Phil. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to have you here this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier. It's my privilege uh, and honor to open the word with you and for you this morning uh, and to welcome you here. If it's your first time with us, we are glad that you uh, joined us today. So if you're not already there, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're continuing on in our study um, over the last two weeks. What we've looked at is um, really just the titles that are given to this one who would be the Messiah. And as you realize, as we've talked with the last two weeks, as we've looked at these titles, what you realize very quickly is that names uh, are, are of significance um, in this passage. I mean, we think about names in the context of our culture, in the context of, of the places in which we live. And names in our culture have meaning. I mean, parents give a lot of time. They give a lot of thought uh, to the names that they give their children. My wife and I um, are in this stage right now. We're expecting uh, our first girl um, in February, and so we've been spending the last couple of months just racking our brains um, for, for names. My family has given us almost nothing to work with historically. Um, so my great-grandmother's name was Myrtle Beatrice. And no offense um, if that's your name in this room, but it's, it's a name that we didn't quite think would fit um, our child. And so we've been thinking about all of these different names. What are we going to name this kid? Because we think there's subs- substantial meaning to those things. And one of the things that they don't tell you when you very first get married and and when you start the first conversation about children, one of the things that doesn't occur to you is that right off the bat, there's a whole bunch of names that you can't use. I mean, if you ever dated somebody who had a particular name, that name is off the table from now until the end of time. And likewise, if your wife grew up with a kid next door who is mean, that name is gone right off the bat. You can't use that one. I mean, I've talked to teachers before, uh, and teachers will often say, we are having such difficulty coming up with names for our kids because every name that my husband or my wife suggests, I can think of a child who was just an absolutely terrible kid, and I don't want to use that name. And so as we prepare for the birth of this child, we're, we're, we're really struggling to nail down what we're going to call this kid. I mean, I think we did a good job with our first two. They have substantial meaning to them as to why we picked those names. So my oldest son uh, is named Leo Stott. Leo is after my father. Uh, Stott is after the theologian John Stott, who had a huge impact on, on, on my life and, and certainly on my ministry as well. Uh, my younger son is named Harvey Owen. Har- Harvey is the last name uh, of the pastor who led my parents to the Lord and and really changed, for all intents and purposes, the whole direction uh, of our family. Uh, And Owen is after the theologian John Owen. And so we have these names that I think are very strong and meaningful. Now, one of the things that we didn't do when we were selecting those names is actually look at the literal meaning of those names. And fortunately, I think we dodged a bullet, but Leo Stott literally translated means lion bull. And Harvey Owen literally translated means blazing iron young warrior. And if you know my son Harvey, 
you know how descriptive that is of him. So as we're thinking about girls' names now, we're thinking about, okay, what means peaceful or peacemaker or quiet one or obedient daughter? And as significant as names are in our culture, they are infinitely more meaningful in ancient culture. And so as we come to this passage in Isaiah 9, where Isaiah is giving these descriptions for the one who would be Messiah, it would be, it would be important for us to stop and give meaningful consideration to the titles that he ascribes. And each one of the titles that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks have very real and practical application to our life. So if you were with us two weeks ago as Dave preached, he talked about the idea of wonderful counselor and that what that word wonderful means is not just one who is amazing or really impressive, but it literally means one who does supernatural things. And that word counselor is the idea of one who's an advisor to a king. That the Holy Spirit within us applies that work of Jesus Christ as the wonderful counselor. That he has a supernatural plan that he is bringing to bear on our lives. And last week we talked about the term mighty God. That all the fullness of who God is dwelled completely in Jesus Christ. That Jesus was pre-existent with the Father and with the Spirit. That he has always been. That his story did not begin 2,000 years ago. But that it began at the very, uh, before rather, the very beginning of time. That he is pre-eternal, ever existing. And that the mighty God is Jesus Christ. And today, we come to maybe the most interesting term that we find, everlasting father. Now, even as you hear the word father, there are all kinds of associations that we have with that word. And for some of you, as soon as you hear the word father, you think of cherished memories of a sweet relationship. Your mind goes to childhood memories or conversations you've had. You're reminded of all of the good times and interactions and conversations you had with your father. And for some of you, maybe it brings you to more of a, a, of more of a heartbroken place as you mourn the loss of a father. For others, perhaps you never knew your father. And so this whole idea of Jesus as the everlasting father brings all kinds of questions to your mind. And yet for still some others, perhaps your father was abusive or hurtful. And so hearing that same term applied to Jesus Christ is something for you that is uncomfortable and difficult. And all of those feelings, all of those feelings point to the importance of a father in the spiritual and emotional development of an individual. Eric Metaxas, in a book that he wrote, had a chapter called The Importance of Fatherhood. And as he was running down the introduction to this chapter, he looked at various, uh, various individuals through the course of history and talked about how the, the state of their relationship with their father affected their spiritual view, and in particular, their view of God. And as he's giving these accounts, he gives the account specifically of Sigmund Freud, uh, who's not exactly known for being a stalwart of Orthodox Christianity, but nevertheless had a very keen observation. Here is what Here is what Freud said. He said, nothing is more common than for a young person to lose faith in God when he loses respect for his father. See, this is how important fathers are to us, both developmentally and culturally and personally. Fathers play an incredibly 
vital role. And certainly for some of you in the very same sense that that maybe you wrestled with your faith or wrestled with the idea or the ideal of a God because of your interactions with your father, others of you, like me, maybe were brought back to faith because of a father who is devout in his understanding and knowledge and relationship with God. See, the truth of the matter is the same thing that causes some people to wrestle brings others back to God. So humanly speaking, understand this is where we're going this morning. Humanly speaking, if there is anything we need according to this passage, it is to understand how our Savior serves as Father. Now right up front, I want to make something very clear because we we have to remember the context of Isaiah 9 or we're going to begin to assign all kinds of meaning to this text that I don't think it intends to communicate. And the first thing we need to remember is that Isaiah 9, particularly verses 6 through 7, are labels that are not given generically for God. In other words, Isaiah here is not describing the Godhead. He's not describing here, for instance, uh, uh, God the Father, but these are specific references to the nature of, of Jesus. In other words, Isaiah is describing here the role that Jesus takes on in the life of the believer. And the reason that's important is because if we begin to lose sight of that, we can begin thinking in a modalistic mentality. Modalism is an age-old heresy that says that God just takes different forms. That throughout different spans of time, God interacted with people in different manners. So at one point in time, God functioned as God the Father, and then he functioned as, as God in Jesus Christ, and then he now functions uh, as God in the Spirit in this particular age. And what it does is it divorces the truth of the Trinity, the idea that there are, in fact, three persons who make up one God, and it says that instead God just functions differently. That's not at all what Isaiah 9 is trying to communicate. And if you were with us during our brief series on the Holy Spirit, we, we touched on that. You can go back and listen to those sermons. But understand here what this is ultimately communicating. It's communicating that Jesus Christ is the only physical being who could have ever perfectly displayed God's fatherly character. And the reason he could do that is because he was one in nature and in essence with the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God the Father looks like, if you want to understand his character, if you want to understand who he is, you can look at Jesus and see that picture. That Jesus is the perfect image of God, the exact representation of his being, that Jesus alone makes the Father known to us. And all throughout his teaching in the New Testament, you find Jesus uh, implying this very notion. In John chapter 14, verse 9, most explicitly, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He's talking to his disciples and he said, You keep saying that you want to see the Father, that you want to know the Father. All you have to do is look at me and you'll know the Father. All you have to do is listen to my teaching and interact with me and have conversations and and look at how I live and you'll know who the Father is. You'll know what he looks like. In other words, in the words of one one theologian, a man named Sam Storms, he said it this way, everlasting Father is a descriptive analogy pointing to Christ's character, that he is fatherly, father-like in his treatment of us, that he is to us, the everlasting Father. So the question then becomes, how then is Jesus our everlasting Father? 
and we'll spend the remainder of this morning looking at those two words and what they mean for us. Let's start first with this question, how is Jesus our Father? How is Jesus our Father? And there's a lot of ways you could tackle that sort of a question, but here's where we're going to take it this morning. I think in order to understand, at least in part, what Isaiah is trying to communicate, we have to understand the idea of federal headship. Now, federal headship is really just a fancy way of saying that we have a spiritual representative, that there is somebody at at different points in time, there were people that acted as our spiritual representatives before God. So Isaiah 43 is going to say that our first father was Adam. In fact, it specifically says in Isaiah 43, verse 27, as God is speaking to his people, he said, your first father sinned. And your mediators transgressed against me. In other words, we are all descendants of Adam. Certainly physically we understand that. We understand that Adam and Eve had children and those children had children and those children had children. And and from that you get all the peoples of the earth. So we understand that physically we're descendants of Adam. But what Isaiah 43 and other passages are communicating is that not only are we physical descendants of Adam, but we are also spiritual descendants And Paul, in the book of Romans, says it this way. He says, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So if you think back to the account in Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve fall into sin, as they choose to ignore the instruction of God and instead dive into a pursuit of wanting to be like God themselves, They ignore his instruction. They sin against an almighty God. They commit treason against the God who created the universe. And in doing so, they set the course for all humanity. So that when individuals are born, they are not born as neutrals, as blank slates, able to choose good or evil, but rather we are all marked by sin. In other words, we are sinners by nature. Our default setting is towards sin. Our hearts are turned towards sin. And so it doesn't mean that we all do all bad things all the time, but what it means is that everything we do outside of the work of Christ in our hearts is tainted by sin. And not only are our lives marked by sin by nature, but also by choice. In other words, by the very actions that we do. Day in and day out, we confirm our status as sinners. What Paul says in Romans chapter 5 is ultimately because of the sin that is within us, death is the consequence. See, what we needed was a whole new representative. We needed a whole new father. We needed a different source of life altogether. And so that brings us to the person of Jesus because what we ultimately needed was someone who was not marked by sin. We needed someone who was not born with a sin nature and who did not sin throughout the course of his life. And we find that in Jesus Christ. And the only way that that can happen is through the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. But understand that one of the reasons that we find the virgin birth of Christ to be such an important thing as believers in the gospel is because it's through that virgin birth that we understand that Jesus Christ is not marked by sin. It's what the angel communicated in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, when he, said, when he said to Joseph, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That from his conception there was something inherently different. That he didn't have that sin marker in his life that came from Adam, but instead was 
the God-men. So I want you to think about it this way, and this is an age-old illustration. Many of you will have heard it. Perhaps for many of you it will be new. Imagine that there's a string of mountain climbers on a dangerous precipice. They're climbing up the mountain. It's a sheer face, and, and for their own safety, they are all attached, roped one to another. And imagine as they're climbing that wall, the person at the very bottom of that rope comes unhinged, comes loose from the wall, and all of a sudden that rope jerks with all the weight of an individual falling off of a mountain. And instantaneously, the the climber directly above him feels the weight, the velocity of that individual falling. They feel their own hands falling away from their pickaxes, and they too begin to descend. They fall and jerk away from that mountain, and horrifically, individual after individual after individual begin falling away from the sheer face of that cliff. And as the weight grows and as the velocity increases, more and more people begin to be pulled off of the wall until there is only one man left. And that one climber attached to all of the rest who have already fallen knows what's coming. And so with all of the might that he can muster, he takes his pick and he shoves it deep into the side of that mountain and he waits knowing what's about to happen. And as the slack goes out of that line and the weight of those individuals and the velocity of people falling hits his body, he begins to be crushed. As the rope tightens around him, he feels bones break. He feels his body begin to give way. But he does not give up and he holds on and he begins to climb. And as he's bearing all of the weight of all of those people, and because he's beginning that climb one by one, those people begin to find their footing, their fall is stopped, and they're saved. See, that old illustration is meant to communicate this idea that just as Adam fell in his sin, what he did was pull all of humanity into sin with him. And so what we desperately needed above all else is someone, an individual, just one person who is connected to humanity but not fallen. Someone who could bear the weight of all of those individuals. Someone who could carry us in our inability. Someone who could take all of the evil and all of the sin onto himself. And for him to bear that weight meant that he would be crushed. Jesus Christ was that one. He was the last one on the mountain. And he was crushed. And the beauty of that imagery is that you begin to see what happens on the cross We begin to see what happens when Jesus Christ is our substitute, that he was our representative, that he was our father. That by staying there, by by doing that work, by, by taking on his body all of the weight of our inability and our sin and our fallenness, that stability then was transferred. That our falling stopped. That salvation was imparted in the words of the Bible that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
So understand that through his death and his resurrection, he paid the penalty. He stopped the fall. He provided life. Listen, he became the perfect example of what a father does. Lovingly, sacrificially giving himself. To the point where Paul in 1 Corinthians is going to continue the idea that he began in Romans 5 by saying in verse 22 of that chapter, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So when Isaiah references this idea that Jesus himself is the everlasting father, what he's saying is he is now your new representative, your new dad, the one who is willing to give sacrificially and give himself up entirely for your salvation and for your life. That you've received a new father and with it a new inheritance, a new family, a new identity. That when Jesus won over death, his victory over it was applied to all who belong to him. That you have received forgiveness and righteousness through him. Have you ever stopped to consider? And if you're like me, you probably didn't spend time thinking about it until this week. But did you ever stop to consider how Jesus functions as father? See, only a perfect father who had that sort of love for his children could have done what Jesus Christ did. And not only is he our father, Isaiah is going to say, but he is our everlasting father. And again, I want you to stop and consider what that word means because our tendency as we read that is just to think about the eternality of Jesus, that we want to think about the fact that he is everlasting. We might even think of it in good theological terms, that Jesus Christ was preexistent, that he has always been, that he had no beginning point, he had no creation point. And we may think about it properly in the sense that he has no end to his being, that he will exist eternally. And all of those things are good and true, but understand that that is not primarily what Isaiah is trying to communicate in this passage. Rather, the word everlasting in this text is used not to define his nature, but to define his fatherhood. It's a descriptor of the nature of his fatherhood. That his fatherhood towards us never comes to an end. See, in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, not only did he come to bring eternal life, and not only did he come to to be our wonderful counselor, uh, to be the mighty God, to be what we'll talk about next week, the Prince of Peace, not only did he come to do all of these amazing things for us, and not only did he come to give us all sorts of incredible things, from the divine gifts to everyday graces, from forgiveness and salvation and life everlasting to his indwelling spirit, he gave us the church and a new family, he gave us hope, he gave us a future. He gave us the future resurrection. He gave us all sorts of things. But understand this, Jesus will not allow himself to simply be a means to an end. In other words, we do not come to Jesus for the things he can bring us. And this is where so many of us struggle with our own religiosity in our hearts. We think of Jesus Christ as a talisman, a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot 
to get us through our life or to perhaps get us through a difficult circumstance. So we find ourselves in truly difficult situations, in peril in our life, and we cry out like a foxhole conversion to Jesus saying, if you do this for me, I will give you my life. As if Jesus only exists to give you good things. And though he is a giver of good gifts, understand that he is something far, far greater than that. See, the most amazing thing about Christianity is that when you get Jesus, you get Jesus. And that he inherently is greater than any other thing you can imagine. So when Isaiah says in this passage that his fatherness is everlasting, he's saying that he came to give you himself forever. And because of Christ, the family of God is no longer limited to the nation of Israel. It's no longer limited to a precious few who are born in the right place at the right time but because of the everlasting nature of Christ's fatherhood. He has now brought to himself a family made up of the nations, of Jews and Gentiles, of men and women, of those who were born in low estate and in stately mansions. He has brought to himself a people, a new family, of which he's the father. And think for a moment about the implications of what this means for you. And by the way, again, I mean, don't get distracted with the use of the word father. We'll talk at a later date about about God the Father proper um, and, and his role in our life. But just think about the application of his salvation for us in this moment. Because for those of you who have a difficult relationship with your father, and certainly... Certainly there are those of us within this room who have a difficult relationship, a broken relationship, if a relationship exists at all. And for those of you who have a difficult relationship with your father or never knew him, understand this. Jesus is the perfect father who never leaves. He never leaves. He never abandons. He never wanders. And for those of you who have longed for your father's acceptance, I've spoken to enough people over the years to know that that there are those who chose the place they live and the job they have and the degree they attained and the person they married and the things that they do socially. They have done everything out of a deep desire to attain their father's acceptance and affirmation. And the horrible thing about that is Rarely does that affirmation or acceptance come as a result of those things, and to the extent that it does, that acceptance and that affirmation is conditional. It can be taken away as quickly as it was given, but what you find in Christ is someone who is wholly different as a father. Because his acceptance of you and his affirmation of you has nothing to do with what you've accomplished, but with what he has done on your behalf And to those of you who have good fathers, understand that to the extent that your father was good to you, it was simply a reflection of the goodness of Christ. 
And I'll be honest with you, as I was writing that this week, my own heart began to break for my children because understand, parents, the role that you have in the lives of your kids to be the picture of Christ. And even in your brokenness and even to the extent that you're fallen and even to the extent that you fail, do your kids see that you likewise need a savior? Do they see you run to the mercy and grace of Christ? I want to close this morning with a reflection from Augustine, an early church father, and in trying to communicate the person of Jesus Christ, pre-existent and eternal forevermore. Here was the loop that Augustine wrote. He said, he then, speaking of Christ, he then is beautiful in heaven before time, beautiful on earth, beautiful in the womb, beautiful in his parents' arms, beautiful in his miracles, beautiful under the scourge, beautiful when inviting to life, beautiful in laying down his life, beautiful in taking it up again, beautiful on the cross, beautiful in the grave, beautiful once again in heaven. See, the beauty of the everlasting Father is not just in the fact that someone loved us so much that he would come, be born of humble parents, and die a death on the cross, but that he took up his life once again, that he reigns to this day, that his rule is eternal, and that our home ultimately is with him. That is our hope in this season, our hope and our confidence in a Father who is everlasting. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for truths that are at once so simple and yet so challenge our assumptions of who you are. I thank you that in Isaiah's inspired writing of this passage, even he didn't understand all that, was, all that this was to mean, but that as we talked about last week, it was given to us who can now look back and see the whole chain of your redemptive story in place. God, I thank you for those in this room who struggle with this notion, who wrestle with the idea of, of a father who loves them. And God, I pray that as they wrestle, that they would wrestle well, that they would see the beauty and the wonder of who you are, that they would see in Jesus Christ the beautiful and perfect work that only a loving father could do. And that even to the extent that Jesus Christ demonstrated those things, in that moment we were seeing a picture of God the Father. So we pray, Lord, that as we come into this season and as we think about a baby being born in the manger, we would be reminded of the fact that that son would grow up to be the everlasting father. And that we don't even look back on this story in mere sentimentality, but that it reminds us of a day when we will be reunited face to face with that everlasting Father, one who never leaves, who never forsakes, who holds his, his children securely, 
and whose salvation is sure. And we thank you for the things that you proclaim. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.